Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on treatment for people with parents with borderline personality disorder. I am your host, Dr. Donnelly Snipes. This is based on a book called Surviving a Borderline Parent, hence the reason the title is actually um, putting the disorder before the person. I prefer person-first language, but, you know, soapbox over. Love this book. Love, love, love this book. I have used it with many a client who has a parent who may not fully meet the criteria for borderline personality disorder, but who has some tendencies that lean towards borderline-esque behaviors. Um, and, and we really look at the behaviors individually and what they mean. So if you have a chance to pick this book up, it's, it's a real thin book. Um, I've used it. It's a great book as a foundation for group therapy. If you have multiple people who have parents who are, uh, have symptoms of borderline personality disorder or addiction, you'll notice that a lot of the symptoms of active addictive behavior are very similar to the symptoms of uh, many of the symptoms of borderline personality disorder. So this book is a great resource for you. We're going to review the characteristics of borderline personality disorder and really kind of talk about how they're similar to addiction and other disorders as well. Compare and contrast BPD with addictive behaviors and examine ways to implement the activities presented in the group in the book in a group format. Characteristics of borderline personality disorder. Now I want us to think back to, you know, diagnosis 101, intro to DSM that we took in college, remembering that personality disorders generally start very early in a person's development. I also want you to think as we are talking about the characteristics of people with borderline personality disorder, I want you to think about how could this behavior be protective? What may have happened to this person in their lifetime that would have prompted the development of this behavior to help them stay safe, to help protect them, or for whatever reason. What happened? Because most people with borderline personality disorder uh, have an extensive trauma history. May not be when they were knee-high to a grasshopper, but they tend to have significant trauma histories um, and abandonment issues. So we do want to take into consideration the fact that behavior has meaning. Behavior is communication. What is this behavior communicating? So poorly developed or unstable self-image 
often associated with excessive self-criticism. So you have this person with um, a very, very low self-esteem who probably relies on others for external validation because they don't feel worthy, which helps us understand why a person with uh, borderline characteristics may sort of flip on a dime going from extremes of valuation to devaluation of people. When they feel accepted, they, they thrive on that. They cherish that. They, they need that. It's like their life's blood. But when they start to fear that they're being rejected, they cut that off really fast to protect themselves from um, rejection. Because re rejection in their mind re means rejection of them as a human being. It means rejection of their worth as a person. So we do want to recognize how people with borderline personality disorder interact in relationships. They have difficulty recognizing the feelings and needs of others and often themselves. They are often so caught up in chaos and stress and that stress response system, that HPA axis is just going gangbusters because they are terrified of abandonment. They are terrified of failure. They are terrified of isolation. They may have interpersonal hypersensitivity. So going back to that hypervigilance, a lot of times people with borderline personality disorder are extremely hypervigilant, hypersensitive to microaggression. And they are prone to feel slighted or insulted, which prompts that rage reaction. And a lot of times we've talked before when we've talked about the HPA axis going from flat to furious. People with borderline personality disorder often, probably because of their trauma history, have a tendency to emotionally dysregulate. So when they feel slighted or insulted, instead of going, eh, well, that sucks, it is a huge big deal. It also, again, often represents to them a rejection of them, a statement that they are not valuable as... A human being. Their perceptions of others tend to focus on negative attributes or vulnerabilities. Now, this is kind of interesting when we're talking about someone with borderline personality disorder, thinking again where their self esteem is and that they require, often require external validation. When they focus on other people's negative attributes or vulnerabilities, what function does that serve? It really oftentimes helps them feel less vulnerable to rejection themselves. If they can find the other person's button, if they can find the other person's faults, then they can make sure to drag that person down too because they feel so vulnerable. They feel so inept, incompetent, whatever word you want to use, that a lot of times they feel inadequate and unworthy of being in relationships with others. So they need to sometimes focus on the faults other people have in order to kind of feel like they're cutting them down um, or feel like, okay, this person isn't so perfect, so maybe they won't abandon me. They have intense, unstable, and conflicted close relationships marked by mistrust, neediness, and fear of abandonment. Kind of talked about that a lot already, but this is one of those overarching characteristics of borderline personality disorder. Now remember, BPD, just like anything, is often on a spectrum. And you can have um, people from, uh, what was that movie with Glenn Close and Michael Douglas? I can never remember the name of it. Um, 
where that that was one of your more extreme examples of borderline type behavior. But you have other people, fatal attraction. Thank you, Amanda. Um, but you have other people who aren't, don't go to that extreme, but you can see the vacillation between extremes um, to a certain extent. They are in their, in their relationships. As soon as something starts to go a little bit sour or they perceive something is starting to go a little bit sour, they may kick that person to the curb. Um, as soon as they start to feel the slightest bit of criticism or um, any sort of aggression towards them, they often put their walls up and push that person out. They are protecting themselves. If the person has trauma, you know, thinking about why this might have occurred, if the person had trauma when they were um, younger, you know, uh, they probably did this as a protective mechanism. When they felt that danger was coming close, they put their walls up and protected themselves in any way possible. People with borderline personality disorder often view others in extremes of idealization and devaluation. They love you or they hate you. There is no middle ground. And that can be really challenging when you're working with clients that have borderline personality characteristics, or you're working with a client whose family members have borderline personality characteristics. Because when you start doing something they don't like, or if they feel like you are blaming them for something, you are likely going to be ostracized really fast. So it's really difficult. Um, and, and it is a challenge a lot of times to hold your boundaries and to hold steadfast and communicate with a person in a way that they can hear. And that's one of the reasons Linehan's model for dialectical behavior therapy, um, using team meetings and, and staffing these cases regularly to prevent splitting is so important because, as I mentioned, the person with borderline personality disorder often is very adept at noticing your hot buttons and very adept at noticing your vulnerabilities and maybe the things you don't do well. And they can use those to their advantage to try to manipulate you in order to get you to do what they want. I really don't believe that it's really all that conscious in what they do. I think a lot of it goes back to trying to do things to protect themselves, getting you to stay, getting you to not be critical of them, getting you to do what is needed. We see when we're working with people who have borderline personality disorder and we get close to termination, or if we have to refer to another clinician, uh, sometimes we will see an exacerbation of symptoms because that fear of rejection, that fear of abandonment, that terror of not being able to have the reinforcement that they need, the, the life air breathed into them, that, you know, they may start uh, decompensating and becoming self-injurious. A lot of times in close relationships, the person with borderline personality disorder alternates between over-involvement and withdrawal. Um, and uh, Catherine had asked earlier about, you know, applying some of this stuff to working with um, a client whose parent has borderline personality disorder. And I want you to just think for a minute. If you have teenagers of your own, you've probably been in, in this situation, but you were a teenager at one point, if nothing else. So you can probably remember um, that time of your teenage years is just wrought with trying to find your identity. You know, looking back at um, 
Erickson's stages of psychosocial development. This period, they're finding their identity. They're trying to sort of sever that umbilical cord a little bit and develop a new set of friends. They're tr trying to fledge from the nest, whatever you want to say. And this can be perceived by the parent with borderline personality disorder as rejection or abandonment, which just makes their fears intensify and it can make them um, have a, a really difficult time handling when their teenager um, or when their child starts having opinions of their own that don't agree with the person, um, starts doing things that they don't like or doing that teenage teenager thing that I think most of them do. I know mine did. Um, of sort of rolling their eyes like, oh, not this again. That can feel extremely rejecting and aggressive to a person with borderline personality disorder. So it is very difficult for the parent with BPD to, you know, interface with their child, which is where we go to the over-involvement, the helicopter parent, to the withdrawal, to the fine, you don't need me, um, perspective. And it's important to try to help the parent, when possible, um, navigate that. But a lot of times, with most personality disorders, the symptoms are very, very egocentric, which means the person who has them doesn't realize that they are dysfunctional. They don't see the problem with their behaviors. And a lot of times, if the therapist starts trying to point out the parent's um, behaviors which may strain the relationship with the child, the, the parent with borderline personality disorder will be, feel rejected and switch over to that devaluation and it trying to blame the child, blame the therapist for what's going on in order to try to protect their sense of self. So what do we do about this? Um, well, we'll get there in a minute. What are the effects of living with someone with borderline personality disorder on others. One of the things is feeling inadequate despite best efforts to appease. When you are working, living with someone with borderline personality disorder, and as a therapist, if you're working with them or as a loved one, if you're living with them, despite your best efforts, it seems like that person will always have some sort of criticism. And from their perspective, think about what function does that serve for the person with borderline personality disorder. If they're criticizing you, they may be thinking that they're making you feel dependent on them or they're putting you in a position where you won't leave them because you're not perfect. So criticism can be something to look at. Lack of emotional boundaries. People who are engaged with someone who has borderline personality disorder often feel responsible for that person's happiness, whether it's significant others or a child feeling responsible for the parent's happiness. Every time the child starts to try to have an opinion of their own or say something that the, the parent doesn't, doesn't agree with, they are just lambasted. Um, they feel responsible to make sure that the parent is happy when they disagree. The parent either gets angry, which, you know, is threatening and they feel bad for, quote, making the parent angry, or the parent withdraws and gets depressed and possibly self-injurious. Again, the child feels like, when I disagreed with my parent, this happened. I did it. And it's important for us as clinicians, if we're working with that child, to help them understand what they have 
um, control over and what they don't have control over. Um, and, and that's really difficult for young children. For teenagers, they're more able to start wrapping their head around um, who's, re who's responsible for their parents' happiness. Another issue that comes up in these families is that people may feel guilty for their own personal happiness. And the person with BPD may make the person, try to make the person feel guilty for being happy. It's like, I'm here, I'm miserable, you're going to leave me all alone. You, know, you get into this relationship, you know, teenagers get in relationships, and you're, you are happy. And, you know, you two are going to be together, you're going to leave, you're never going to come back. You know how that, you know, guilt uh, story may go. And it's important for people living with those with borderline personality disorder to recognize, again, who's responsible for that person's happiness and it's that person and how to deal, how to handle their guilt about not being there for the person, about not, um, about being happy on their own. If you live with someone with B BPD, you may have difficulty trusting other people due to alterations between feeling appreciated and condemned. You know, once you grow up in a household where somebody regularly, you know, loves you, thinks you're the greatest thing since sliced bread, and then the very next day you are Satan's spawn, it, it's hard to wrap your head around the fact that that is not typical. It's hard to trust that other people aren't going to vacillate between those extremes. So it does a number on people's ability to trust and predict interpersonal relationships in the future. There can also be anxiety because the person with borderline personality disorder is unpredictable. And it could be, you, you don't know if that person's going to be happy, if they're going to be rageful, if they're going to be depressed and self-injurious. You just have no idea what you're going to walk into in on any moment. It's not even day to day. Anything can set off the person with borderline personality disorder, which leads to Hypervigilance, trying to notice any sort of microscopic clue, not necessarily just microaggression, but micro clue that will give you an idea about which person, which way this person's mood is going to go, which way the wind is blowing today. And that's exhausting. That is very, very exhausting. When a person grows up with a parent with borderline personality disorder, their attachment is, their primary attachment figure is not going to be a secure, develop a secure attached relationship. There is going to be a lot of anxiety in that relationship. And we know the importance of that primary caregiver relationship. So the impact of that is going to be long lasting on the child with the parent with borderline personality disorder. It doesn't have to last forever. Once they recognize that there's a problem, you know, they can work to learn how to develop secure attachments with others, but they may never be able to develop a secure attachment with the person with borderline personality disorder because that person may not be capable of a secure attachment. So this book um, goes through a lot of different gr um, group activities or individual activities. It's actually designed as a self-help book, but um, it can be also, like I said, used really well in group. I have everybody get a copy of it because I think it's important for them to have it as a reference. Um, group activity one, 
discuss the function of each symptom for the parent. So we just went through the symptoms of borderline personality disorder. And it's important for people to start discussing among themselves what functions that behavior could serve. And as with a lot of things that I do, uh, you can do flip charts. In um, my clinic, we actually have um, whiteboards in the corners, so we're not using so much flip chart paper, but however you want to do it. And I put each symptom on the whiteboard and I have people go around in groups of four and identify the possible ways that each of those behaviors could be protective, could be functional, and where what may have happened to their parent in the past that may have prompted the development of those behaviors. And they write those down and we start talking about them and we start helping the person, um, the child, the adult child, develop an understanding and be able to empathize and kind of get into that chaos and, and hurricane that's going on inside the mind of the person with borderline personality disorder. We're not excusing the behavior. We're not saying, oh, okay, well, no problem then. But it's helpful if the person understands, if the child, adult child understands where it's coming from, because then it's possible to take it less personal, they start understanding where it's coming from and the whole adage, it's not me, it's you, uh, sort of becomes more appropriate. Have participants identify any behaviors they have, which also may resemble that symptom. We learn what we live. And if a person grew up in a household with a person with borderline personality disorder, they likely have some of those characteristics. When we form our initial attachment relationship, we learn how to act and interact. We learn how to re-regulate when we become emotionally dysregulated. We learn how to cope with life and we learn self-esteem and we learn a whole lot of stuff in that primary attachment relationship. Think about what the child learned from a parent with borderline personality disorder. They learn to be suspicious. They learn to not trust. They learn to expect rejection. They learn to set boundaries. They learned that life is unpredictable and there's nobody there that you can count on 100% of the time. So yeah, they learned a lot of stuff. Is that helpful in their current life? And, you know, can they start identifying um, what they learned and... Uh, addressing those issues, review and refute the takeaways, providing practical cognitive and interpersonal skills. So for example, if the person says, I learned that nobody was going to be there, if, if anything needed to be done, or if I needed protection, I couldn't trust anybody. Okay. Well, if that's one of the things that you took away, let's talk about that. Let's try to counter that with a more helpful, less cognitive, cognitively distorted statement. The second group activity she calls stop and think. The lessons are clear, review and refute. It's important to encourage people throughout the week to notice once they've identified some of their behaviors, to notice their behaviors. And this is when they start becoming aware of what influences them, what triggers them to feel anxious, to feel hypersensitive, what triggers them in their relationships. So they start becoming aware of what their behaviors mean. All grown up is the next exercise. And in this, the person examines the effects of borderline personality on their living condition. So again, you can do, you know, send people to the different corners and go through each one of these things. You can also 
um, have people break up into small groups and discuss, give each group one of these um, or two of these, if you've got a small group, uh, two of these effects and have them discuss among themselves how the living conditions may have created these issues in their life and then share with the group. So they are doing sort of psychoeducation. They're talking about how just in general, living in a house with someone with borderline personality disorder creates a sense of chaos and contributes to abuse and neglect. So it's not anything super personal for them necessarily. What they're doing is sharing in general how BPD characteristics can create these situations within a living environment. And those situations include chaos, abuse and neglect, boundary violations, invalidation, role reversals, focus on looks or everything. And it's not just necessarily about physical appearance, but it's about the appearance to the rest of the world. We want to make it appear to everybody else that everything is okay. And a keen slash hypersensitive perception of what's going on, always being hypervigilant to protect yourself from you know, being caught unawares when, you know, the wind changes direction. Six seeds to grow a healthy child um, is another, the next activity. And you encourage clients to talk about what they need now or what a child would have needed then in order to grow up and feel healthy, happy, safe, and secure. We talk about support, respect and acceptance, voice, unconditional love and affection, consistency, and security. We go through the different um, seeds, if you will, and I have clients identify what does that look like if you need support to grow up as a healthy child? What does that mean? What would it look like if somebody was supportive to you? Because it's real easy to say you need support, but what does it mean? What does it look like in a relationship if you're getting respect and acceptance, does it mean that the person agrees with everything you say all the time and thinks you can do no wrong? Or does it mean something else? And encouraging them to really start honing in on what they need in relationships, what characterizes healthy relationships. What does it look like if they have voice in a relationship? And thinking about if they've ever been in a relationship where they've had any of these characteristics. What does unconditional love and affection look like? And a lot of times I've got to stop and really explain the difference here between conditional positive regard and unconditional positive regard being that conditional positive regard is when you're loved for what you do. Unconditional positive regard is you lo you're loved for who you are. People may not like your behaviors. They may not like some of your choices, but they love you anyway. They love you for who you are. And it's sort of the difference between telling a small child that they are a bad child versus they are a good child that made a bad decision. Consistency and security are the other two seeds that are important in relationships. And again, having the person and, and the, the people in your group describe what that looks like. What does it look like to have consistency in relationships? Does it mean that every time I call, you're going to answer by the second ring, even if it's two in the morning? And really going through these, talking about what 
clients think it should look like and making sure that they have a reasonable expectation for what it's going to look like. If I think the consistency means you're going to answer the phone before the second ring, no matter what time of the day or night I call you, whether you're at work or, you know, on your honeymoon, that's unreasonable. And if I have grown up in a borderline household, I may feel like if somebody doesn't meet those, meet that criteria that they are rejecting me. You didn't answer the phone when I called. And that could prompt a lot of anxiety or anger. So we really want to help people understand what these terms look like in healthy relationships and notice how they react in their relationships when they feel someone's being inconsistent and start addressing those issues and exploring them using cognitive processing therapy, for example, looking at the facts, looking at um, whether they are confusing probability with um, possibility, looking at whether they're not considering other aspects. Yes, if I told you I was going to call you at 2 p.m., and you didn't answer the phone when I called. Okay, that's one thing. If I am calling you at 11 o'clock in the morning while you're at work um, and you don't answer the phone, is that helpful? Is that rational to get upset if you don't answer the phone or if I call you at three o'clock in the morning? Um, so encouraging people to really examine those things. Examine each effect of the borderline personality. Have people go through each um, effect of the borderline personality and discuss how each was present in the family of origin. Remember, we want to go back to um, the abuse, the lack of consistency. You want to talk about feeling inadequate, lack of boundaries, being responsible for the happiness of others, anxiety due to unpredictability, and hypervigilance. How are all of these present in your family of origin? Now, if you grew up in a family with addiction, you know, like I said at the beginning of the presentation, there are a lot of similarities between BPD and addictive behaviors for people who are in active addiction. And there are often um, a lot of issues with boundaries in an addicted family. The, one of the key phrases is don't talk, don't trust, don't feel. There's a lack of boundaries because the person with the addiction is the one that kind of rules everything and keeps everyone else, uh, to quote that book, walking on eggshells. And that is another great book uh, that addresses borderline personality disorders is no more walking on eggshells. You want to discuss how each one of these issues, feeling inadequate, lack of boundaries, feeling responsible for the happiness of others, anxiety to the unpredictability of life, and hypervigilance are present in the client's current life and their current relationships. And identify methods to eliminate those dysfunctional patterns. A lot of times this involves multiple sessions of talking and journaling and reviewing. So they start to see the patterns coming up and it's not something they're going to get in one group. You can introduce it in a group, but then you're going to have to go back the next week after people have had a chance to kind of digest it and notice how each of these things is manifested in their life to start discussing. All right, now I see where my triggers are. Now I see where some of my buttons are. What can I do to start eliminating those dysfunctional patterns and start talking about practical 
tools, including distress tolerance and cognitive behavioral interventions, cognitive restructuring, that can help people stop going from one extreme to the other. Stop having feeling like they have to be hypervigilant all the time. Discuss how to use the six C's that we talked about to help people reparent and nurture themselves. Talk about how to use them to nurture healthy relationships and to prevent vulnerabilities. Now, if you remember, the six C's are support, respect, acceptance, voice, unconditional love and affection, consistency, and security. So how can they use those for themselves. And this is, I love this one because so many times when we talk about relationships, we talk about people's relationships with other people. And I encourage people to start out with the primary relationship and that's the relationship with themselves. They need to learn how to be their own best friend. They need to learn how to trust themselves because they grew up in an environment where it was not safe to trust themselves. They were constantly at the whim of the borderline parent. So how can they start developing using those um, examples of how to provide support and respect and voice? How can they do this for themselves? How can they give themselves voice? How can they give themselves unconditional love and affection? Remember, a lot of people with borderline personality disorder are extremely hypercritical. One of the things that we want to encourage clients to do, because they probably internalize that negative voice, is to start internalizing a more compassionate voice, internalizing a voice of love and acceptance, which is a lot easier said than done. Then we want to turn to how they can use these skills to nurture healthy relationships. And I encourage them to identify one relationship in their life right now. Instead of saying, with all your relationships, you know, start doing these things. That kind of feels overwhelming. So pick one really meaningful relationship, whether it's with your sister or your significant other or your kid or whomever. How can you start su providing support in that relationship and getting support in that relationship? How can you provide and receive respect and acceptance? How can you allow the other person to have a voice while still having a voice yourself? How can you demonstrate unconditional love and affection, consistency, and security to that person as well as receive it? The next group activity is called Stop and Think. And this um, goes into a lot of different resiliency builders. And in the book, she lists a bunch of different ways to encourage people to start thinking about how they can develop their own resiliency, that capacity to bounce back, that capacity to cope with adversity. And it's important for clients to know and to have a list ahead of time that are available. So when things get bad, they can bounce back when they have a fight with a friend, when they call somebody and they don't pick up by the second ring, um, when something happens that pushes their button, how can they tolerate the distress and bounce back? How can they build their own resilience? Part of this also goes into understanding to, uh, kind of quote, uh, Alinehan, understanding vulnerabilities. When people are tired, when they are malnourished, when their blood sugar is low, when they are in a particularly stressful environment, they may be more prone to regressing to those protective behaviors that they learned when they were younger. And it's important for them to understand what they need to support their health and their happiness. 
it's not just about understanding the person with BPD. It's not just about understanding the effect they had on you. But it's also for many people, if not all, but I try to avoid saying all about anything. Um, for many people, they need to grieve a lost childhood. They look back over their childhood and they are angry about the fact that they did not have the parents they feel they should have had or deserved. They, are, they may be depressed because they feel they got gypped. There are a lot of feelings, guilt, anger, depression, anxiety, you know, the list goes on. We want to help them understand the grieving process. Review messages they received in childhood about dealing with losses. When you're working or when, when you're living with somebody who vacillates from idealization to devaluation, there's very little connection. I'm, people with borderline personality disorder, you know, once they decide to cut that tie, it, it's done. And so there's a lot of um, difficulty processing the losses in and, and feeling depressed and grieving the loss. A lot of times that's viewed as um, weak or unhelpful, or it was discouraged in a house with uh, a borderline parent. Identify losses and feelings associated with the dysfunctional childhood. What did you, you didn't have those uh, fairy tale Christmases. You know, it always irritates me. Um, and, and to a certain extent, sometimes makes me sad. At Christmas time, for example, when you see all of those Hallmark movies about these perfect Christmases with perfect families. And, you know, I recognize that that is not reality for the vast majority of people. But when you're work, working with somebody or somebody who hasn't had a Hallmark childhood, when they watch those, they still feel like a part of them missed out. They feel like they should have been able to have that. And they may feel like they will never be able to have that happiness. And we also want to identify continuing issues with the borderline or addicted parent. This parent you know, often still does not recognize their own behavior. They don't recognize their alterations from, you know, loving to hating. They don't see their excessive criticism. They don't see their manipulation. Um, so it's hard for the person who is trying to recover, you know, as they try to recover, what does that mean? What does that look like to the borderline parent? That looks like rejection. When the person starts developing a backbone, starts developing boundaries and enforcing those boundaries, that feels like extreme rejection to the parent with borderline personality disorder or addiction. Um, so it's important to recognize that as our clients start to heal, their parents are probably going to escalate in their, in their behaviors, in their rejection, brooding, because that is how they have sucked the person back in before. They start acting out. The person says, okay, okay, okay. You know, I won't go away. I, I will, I will comply with whatever you want. Just don't be mad. Don't hurt yourself. Don't do this. Don't withdraw. So there's this tug of war that's going on. And it's important to recognize, again, the function of the behaviors and help the person, help the ch adult child start planning and understanding how to deal with this. And in the book, um, Surviving the Borderline Parent, she discusses a lot of different tips and tools to help the adult child start gradually setting boundaries, such as, you know, Telling the person that, you know, I really, for example, I really love you, mom. However, I cannot continue to talk to you when you are 
this angry right now when you are shouting. So I am going to, you know, hang up now. And when you're, you've calmed down a bit, I would love to talk about this with you more. Now, you can imagine how someone with borderline personality disorder may react to that. It's important to prepare the person to uh, handle any escalations in order to, so they're not caught by surprise. Describe what you would have liked your childhood to be like. This is the um, recapitulation, if you will. And then as a group, identify ways to translate that to present day. A lot of times people, you know, I do this just as a simple group. We're all sitting around my uh, handy dandy whiteboard. What would your child, what would you like your childhood to have been like? You know, what did you miss out on that you wish you would have had? A parent that attended your softball games, a, um, you know, those Hallmark Christmases. What is it that you feel like you missed out on? All right. Well, we can't change the past. You know, we haven't invented time travel yet. However, it doesn't mean that you can't create new, you can't create this new life for you and start having the life that you want. You may not have had the childhood that you want, but you can start translating that to present day. Um, having somebody that is there, you know, to give you a pat on the back. How can you do that for yourself? Who in your life in present day is a good cheer for you? And have them start noticing because growing up in a uh, borderline household, people become very hypervigilant to cues of negativity because that's protective. In adult relationships, they're still hypervigilant to cues of negativity and often miss the positivity. So they miss and, and they don't notice as much the people that are there to uh, congratulate them and to help them, to support them. And it's important to start bringing that out. Let's look at the good stuff that you really want in your life that, hey, is already there. And a lot of times when I've worked with clients with um, borderline family members, they have often found this group to be very liberating because they suddenly start to realize that, you know what? I can control my own destiny now. And there are people that love me. Moving on to guilt, responsibility, and forgiveness because this is ingrained in the child who has the parent with borderline personality disorder. They are taught how to feel guilty. Identify potential guilt triggers for the adult child. And this is going to be different for each person. And it's important for them to identify triggers in terms of triggers when I'm dealing with the borderline person, the parent with borderline personality disorder versus <clears throat> triggers uh, of guilt for other things in my life. <coughs> 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 You want to discuss with them how guilt works and what the benefits or motivations for guilt may be. And what I mean by that is the fact that when I make somebody feel guilty, if I try to do it intentionally, what's the benefit to me? Why am I doing this? Why am I trying to make this person feel guilty? Well, if I make them feel guilty, that means they're mad at themselves for something they feel they did wrong. So they're going to apologize and they're going to come back. To that may be the motivation. Guilt is a very strong manipulative lever. Helping people understand what they feel guilty about and identify whether it's something they really need to feel guilty about. We want to help them identify and discuss different origins of guilt. <coughs> <coughs> there are a lot of different 
causes for guilt. It can be the should haves and the shouldn't haves, uh, but what triggers each person's guilt? And this can be pretty broad reaching. It's not just in that relationship. There can be guilt. You know, I feel guilty because, you know, there are still hundreds of thousands of animals that are homeless and being put down every year. Y'all know that I'm huge on animal rescue. So I have that sort of existential guilt out there. But it's important to help people identify the origins of their guilt and why they feel guilty about it. We want to have them identify what can and cannot be controlled. If I feel guilty because you're unhappy, well, I can feel guilty if I did something that particularly made you unhappy. You know, I, I can feel bad if I said something that was mean, okay? I can feel guilty about that and I can make amends. But it's not my responsibility to, and there's no way I can control how you feel all of the time. You know, it's not my job to be the marionette that makes my parent feel happy or sad or angry. You know, I am responsible for my own behaviors and they are responsible for what they do with it, how they react to it. <clears throat> we want to explore the issues of guilt and responsibility going back, especially to childhood and thinking about the things the child felt guilty for. Um, a lot of times it, with parents with borderline personality disorder, if they got angry, they may have gone on a alcohol binge or they may have self-injured or they may have gotten, you know, really, really depressed and withdrawn for a week. And the child may feel guilty about that. They may feel like it's their fault. Um, and it's important to go back and talk about each of those instances that they're still holding on to guilt for and help them process it. <clears throat> and we want to encourage participants to examine their beliefs related to forgiveness. It is really hard for a lot of people with border, um, who grew up with parents with borderline personality disorder to totally forgive what happened. And I talk with my clients about forgiveness being a power play. I'm not saying when I forgive, I'm not saying that what you did was okay. I am saying that I accept what happened was what happened, but I am choosing not to let you continue to have my power. I am choosing not to let you continue or not to let that situation continue to make me feel upset. Forgiveness is about releasing, uh, releasing that anger. Have people com complete an ABC workshop worksheet exploring beliefs about Whoops. Have people complete an ABC worksheet exploring beliefs about guilt. It is really important for them to um, be able to start identifying their automatic beliefs that are supporting their guilt reaction. Have them dispute and evaluate their guilt using the prompts, stop and think, am I guilty? And there are a lot of additional prompts in that activity in the book. But <clears throat> basically it comes down to, let me look at this thing that I'm feeling guilty about? And is it something that I, I hate the word, but is it something I should feel guilty about? And if so, what do I need to do to make amends? The next activity in guilt is in the reframing section. And it helps people start using concepts about personal responsibility to identify ways that they're going to take back their power and control over their feelings, over their relationships, over their boundaries, and over their life. And a lot of the things in this section uh, on personal responsibility can be great group discussion starters. 
Another activity is called stop and think, taking ownership. And there are, stop and think, taking ownership. Um, There are a lot of statements in that book that can be posted, you know, on the group room walls uh, and having to help people remember them when they're feeling powerless or they're not taking ownership. And I encourage people to identify the top three statements in the stop and think section, such as, is this really about me? Or is this bringing up something from my past that they can keep with them? So when they start feeling upset, they can look at those three statements. But I do like having them on the wall in the group room. So people have them to look at. A lot of times when they start to get upset, they will sort of check out, you know, stopping short of dissociating, but their mind goes somewhere else. And if you have visual cues available in the group room, when you're talking to them, they may target in on those, on those things, and it can help them sort of start processing what's going on. Another group activity is called the F word. And under the section, why forgive, there are seven questions that, uh, the author asks, and we go through each one of these questions and talk about what is the benefit to staying angry and what is the benefit of forgiveness for my health, for my relationships? What does it mean? If I forgive you, what does it mean about me? If I forgive you, then we move from guilt to overcoming anger and resentment. And we talk about how anger is a protective emotion and it comes out in order to help people fight or flee. And there are a lot of different types of anger, guilt being one of them, which is anger itself, but there's also resentment, envy, jealousy, and just plain old irritation and rage. We talk about how people experience each one of those triggers for each one of those and ways they can cope with their anger. We also talk about, um, how people can think about what it means to let go of anger. And that's very scary. That is terrifying for a lot of people to think about not only forgiveness, but just letting go of anger, not constantly being in this state of, okay, I'm ready to fight. Just bring it on. We highlight the different consequences of anger, the good and the bad, because anger is a protective reaction. But what are some of the downsides to being angry most of the time? And then I provide tools to help people start managing their anger. And on the YouTube channel, in the videos, there are multiple videos on um, different anger intervention protocols that you can look at if you are unfamiliar or you just need a little bit of extra prompts for finding tools to help people start managing anger. Help people reframe their triggers for each statement and have group members identify an example of when they felt angry or when they felt resentful and use reframing tools. Instead of saying, you made me Um, helping them reframe it to take ownership for it, help them reframe it maybe and take ownership and unhook from it. Instead of saying, you made me saying, I felt angry or I had the thought that you were rejecting me, which triggered my anger. Another group activity can help people identify different manifestations of anger in their life and the effects of each. So again, we go back to Envy and jealousy as a manifestation of anger, angry at other people for having something that you want, like that Hallmark holiday. So 
how does that jealousy manifest in you and how does it affect your ability to you know enjoy the holidays how does that affect your ability to appreciate others the next section is on communicating and setting limits it's important to help clients find the right balance between what they need to do and what they feel like they should do when interacting with the person with borderline personality disorder uh, since there are very few boundaries that don't move they're not on roller skates um in the relationship with a person with borderline personality disorder, it's really important to help the adult child figure out the difference between I need to do this versus I am being manipulated into doing more than I need, need to do. Help them develop practical tools for controlling the, controlling the flow of communication and interaction. When the person with borderline personality disorder feels rejected, they may suddenly start a flurry of text, tweets, um, social media flaming. There are a lot of different ways that they can start to try to get to the person if the person is not being responsive. And it's important for the adult child to have a plan in place um, if the, if when they start setting limits um, and if the person starts de decompensating or escalating, however you want to say it, how are they going to handle that? You know, are they going to have to temporary, temporarily block the person on Facebook, block their number if they're calling it, you know, 75 times in a day? Use the metaphor of changing the dance from a waltz to a tango to illustrate the concept of changing the relationship. Um, a waltz is more of a... Um, you know, just a constant flow, doing the same thing over and over again. A tango is more powerful and it's a constant um, adjustment between boundaries and who's in control. And that's what it's like when you're working with somebody with borderline personality disorder. It constantly feels like it's this power struggle. Have the person, the adult child write a personal bill of rights so they can recognize what their rights are in the relationship. Have people, adult child, children, identify ways that the person with borderline personality disorder and others may violate their boundaries and discuss ways to deal with this and associated feelings of anger and guilt. In another group activity, you can define what a healthy relationship with a parent would look like. Have each client identify the aspects that are important to them and then help them learn how to tango. Help them learn how to sort of lead the other person, guide the other person into the, um, into the rhythm. Encourage people to know their rights on that personal bill of rights. Um, or, you know, you can use the ones that the author listed. Identify uh, what each right looks like, like I have the right to my own feelings. What does that look like? How do you communicate these needs and wants and how to handle it if those rights are not respected? Yet another activity is identifying uh, triggers for the person with borderline personality disorder and their functions and ways to prevent triggering them without sacrificing self. How can I set boundaries, you know, and so I'm not sacrificing myself while at the same time not triggering an onslaught of, you know, rage. Coping with resistance and rages. It's important to help the person role play resistance and rages using different validating phrases like the ones that are suggested on page 115 of the book. Um, 
It's important to really be able to calmly respond when the person with borderline personality disorder starts to escalate. Process after each role play what self-statements were helpful in retaining composure. It's not just about talking to the person with borderline personality disorder, but also about self-talk during it, telling yourself, you've got this, you're going to be okay, you're going to get through it. This is an especially helpful activity to do and even redo right before the holidays and family gatherings. And finally, in reconstructing the past, examine the different roles people play in their families and how those roles may be being reconstructed in the present. So how are they reconstructing their dysfunctional family of origin in their present relationships and even at work? Encourage people to write their autobiography from a reporter's lens to gain objective insight. Present the concept that our parents directly and indirectly communicate messages about messages to us about who we are and who we should be. So what messages did you get from that parent with borderline personality disorder? Challenge people to find positives in the pain and introduce the concept of mindfulness so they can start becoming more aware of when they might be being triggered. Ask clients to envision the future while carefully avoiding simply choosing the opposite because it's the opposite. What does a rich and meaningful life look like to you? Encourage them to start taking care of themselves and review thinking errors and cognitive distortions like personalization and polarized thinking. And finally, discuss how to develop a change plan, prioritizing and maintaining motivation and including sufficient rewards. It's still important to make sure that our clients, the adult child is getting benefits, is rewarding themselves when they do the hard work of setting boundaries. Have each group member identify one change they're going to make this week and how they're going to do it. <clears throat> Encourage them to use measurable goals and objectives. Identify the reason they want to make that change and encourage them in group before they go out and try to do it to brainstorm and figure out how to mitigate any obstacles to their success. Finally, have them develop a thinking error journal and have group members fill it out for a week and then bring it back to group to process, going through those basic cognitive distortions. When people are learning to set boundaries and trust themselves, they need to learn what healthy boundaries look like and how to know if they have them, discuss how to enforce those boundaries in a helpful, assertive way, and begin to explore the concept of self-esteem. Putting it all together encourages clients to remain aware of old behaviors creeping in or new behaviors falling away, reminds clients that change is a process that takes not only time, but support. It reminds them that guilt is a powerful tool when the person with borderline personality disorder uses it to control them and to prevent abandonment. Children who grow up with a borderline parent often develop some of the same traits or behaviors. And children from homes where a parent had borderline personality disorder often have difficulty trusting others and their own feelings. Alrighty, um, the book to answer your question, uh, get back up to the first slide, whoops. It's called Surviving a Borderline Parent, How to Heal Your Childhood Wounds and Build Trust, Boundaries and Self-Esteem by Kimberly Roth and Frida B. Freeman. Um, love this book. There are, you know, obviously, as you saw, there are a lot of things that I just couldn't even cover in here. But, you know, I think it's really beneficial, not only for you and the clients, but also the people who put together such a good book. Um, for you to be able to actually take a look at the book. You can get a little bit more of a preview if you go on uh, books.google.com 
or if you go on Amazon and do the look inside. Between writing notes, filing insurance claims, and scheduling with clients, it can be hard to stay organized. That's why I recommend Therapy Notes. Their easy-to-use platform lets you manage your practice securely and efficiently. Visit TherapyNotes.com to get two free months of Therapy Notes by just using the promo code CEU when you sign up for a free trial at TherapyNotes.com. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.